Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from the Amazon Prime Video original series, Lore. Based on the terrifying podcast, Lore explores haunting real-life tales that give rise to our modern-day myths and legends. Watch the new season October 19th, only on Prime Video. We're in Nashville, Tennessee with my neighbor, Margot Price. It's good to see you, Margot. You too. So much has happened since the release of your breakthrough album, Midwest Farmer's Daughter. You've become a standard bearer for new country music. You've won Americana Awards. You have developed this nationwide devoted fan base. On your new record, All American Made, you stick to that mission of of bringing classic country and classic sounds into the future, while also showing how much more expansive your range is and and has always been. Uh, When you walked into the studio, uh, Sam Phillips' studio in Memphis, did you have a mission in mind? Yeah, the, the first time I went in there was actually during the recording of Midwest Farmer's Daughter at Sun, and Matt said, hey, you guys have to come over and check this place out. I'm still in the middle of renovating it. But it's a really cool spot. And the second I walked in there, I kind of my arm hair stood up on end, and I went up. And we went in his office, and so much of it was untouched. It was just such a an amazing thing to see that it had kind of been sitting there, like preserved. I knew immediately that that was where I wanted to do my second record. I think that yeah, that was before I knew anything was going to happen at all with that. But that was the plan, at least in my mind. Margot, you worked with uh, uh, Matt Ross Spang and Alex Munoz on this record as you worked with them on Midwest Farmer's Daughter. Can you talk a little bit about how that team came together for you and how your connection with Memphis developed? Well, the love affair with Memphis started on a trip to Texas. And uh, first my husband and I went there alone and, you know, of course, took the tour of Sun. And as we were in there, I, you know, leaned over to him and said, I wonder if people record in here and then we saw the neon sign and and I talked to the lady at the front desk of the gift shop and that was the first that I had heard of uh, Matt Ross and you know we spoke on the phone and then we went into just we just recorded Tennessee song when we first went down there and we had a different band and we had just wrote it so we were kind of still developing the parts and coming up with the you know the kind of hip-hop drum beat at the beginning and that kind of built from there and 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 Matt really was adamant about me coming back and doing the full album and he just you know kept saying that he wanted to do the whole thing and he knew we didn't have a large budget he didn't know we were going to go sell our car (laughs) which you did for uh when you made Midwest Farmer's Daughter and you're talking about of course Sun Studio um the most one of the most famous studios in America which which is where you recorded that first album yeah and so you know we had so much, so much fun with him there, and obviously he he convinced us to to go there and do it. It, it just seemed nobody else was as passionate about us getting in there, and it felt really good to have somebody on that side of it, you know, involved with the same passion that we had. And Alex too, um, he'd been playing in you know a little bit in Buffalo Clover when that was um, ending, and then he was playing in the the first couple times that. Um, the price tags were out and about. He would fill in here and there on pedal steel and guitar. And he kept telling Jeremy, he's like, I really want to produce uh, Midwest Farmer's Daughter. And, you know, Jeremy and I just kept saying, well, we don't have any money. We can't afford to bring a producer. We're just, we don't need one. And he said, just let me come. You can do an IOU. <laughs> we'll figure it out later. 
And of course we did. And I'm so glad, you know, that he believed in it enough that he didn't care if he was getting paid. He just wanted to be involved. That's such a almost like a 50s story, you know, writing an IOU on a piece of paper and to a member of your band, the price tags, and you can produce my record. It's like you walked out of of uh, Sam Phillips's dream or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's hear a track from uh, All American Made. Uh, I'm talking with Margot Price today, and this is her second album that she made in Memphis, Tennessee. Let's hear a little bit of Don't Say It, the opening track. Margot, that song really feels like er Margot to me. It's like essential Margot. It's a stand-up-for-yourself song. It's also just great straight-up rock and roll. It has a little bit of a Jerry Lee Lewis feel with the piano, which like evokes Memphis so much to me. Can you talk about putting that song together? Yes, we definitely were going for the the Jerry Lee sound on the keys. And my, um, my piano player, Micah, he is an amazing player. He, he, there's nothing in his range that he can't do. And, you know, we kept recording it kind of, we did that one a few times and Matt Ross said, hey, I know that, you know, this is probably gonna be boring for you. He, he said to Micah, this, this might be a little boring, but can you just kind of Jerry Lee it and just bang on it? And I think he, you could hear that he was, uh, he was really feeling it on that take and, and just slamming his hands all up and down the keys. You know, it's got a little bit of a rockabilly feel. Um, I love doing that kind of Wanda Jackson growl thing in there. I was um, feeling Wanda and your vocal for sure. Yeah. Is she yeah. like a patron saint for you? She is. I've spoken with her a few times and there you know there was talk of us writing together a long time ago but it, it, it didn't happen but I'm, I'm really hoping maybe sometime in the future we can sit down and, and hash out a song together. When you're doing songs like Don't Say It are you thinking about that moment when you know country and rock and roll really merged in the 50s is that an interesting moment for you to evoke for sure but you know especially being in memphis and being around the all the sam phillips vibes yeah i you know i think that country and rock and roll they there's so many times that they belong together people try to separate them and say this you know i only like country music or i only like rock and roll but really it all comes from the blues and and gospel and it's kind of more about your delivery, you know. I could do that song in a way more um, kind of sweet, you know, country way to sing it. But it feels good to have that that driving beat, you know, that goes on the one on the chorus. And, yeah, that's a really fun one to, to play live. We've been throwing it in here and there because it's too hard to wait. <laughs> I also love how on All-American Made you incorporate the soul influences that 
were a big part of your band, Buffalo Clover, and I know are really close to your heart. Did you tap into the resources of Memphis to get that soul sound? Yeah, we, you know, I knew that I that there were going to be some songs that were, you know, more in that genre. And the one thing that I had said is that I didn't want to do any horns because my last band, Buffalo Clover, had it was just really horn heavy. And I felt like I've explored a lot of that territory already. It seems like people just throw horns on a song sometimes and then they say it's a soul song. But I wanted to prove, you know, that the song itself was was there on its own. And um, but we did turn to this man named Lester Snell, who um, arranged strings on Shaft, and he was just amazing to work with. Kind of quiet, but but so thoughtful. And he was asking me about lyrics and, you know, where did you where did this come from? And so it was really great to work with him and and to bring that you know the string element in on some of those songs and even, um, you know, pedal, throwing pedal steel on a soul song too. That's, that's been kind of fun. Let's hear a little of the song, A Little Pain, which was arranged by Lester Snell, who was a great arranger at Stax and worked with people like Isaac Hayes, but here is working with Margot Price. So Lester Snell, interesting character. He worked with Isaac Hayes, Little Milton, The Emotions. Uh, he worked on Disco Duck, apparently. <laughs> um, how did you find Lester Snell? He was a friend of uh, of Matt Ross Spangs as well. And he said, I don't know if we're going to be able to get him. You know, he's he might be kind of expensive and he might just have too much going on. And um, he was, you know, really willing to work with us and work within our budget because he... He listened to the songs and and he he liked me and um, he's a, he really is a genius just the way that he thinks I you know I had my idea of where the strings were going to go and kind of what the melody was going to do and what he ended up adding to it was it was just so wise and so tasteful on that song a little pain which we just heard it is really like the arrangement is a 
is a narrator of the song. It lends depth to the story. When you are writing a song like that, do you write with that fleshed out arrangement in your head, as you're saying? Or, or do you start with, you know, the bones and then later think, well, this would make that kind of song or this would make another kind of song? Well, I, when I was writing it, I was in the back seat of our sprinter or rolling down the road. This was pre, pre-bus times. And um, it just came out in really in, in one piece. When it came out, I I didn't even have a melody to it. Then I sat down with the guitar, added the melody, added the chords. But it was it was my husband's idea to kind of do it in a more soul way. I mean, I could totally do it in a four four, uh, you know, acoustic time. And I think that's the sign of a good song too. Is that you know you can play it with just a, a guitar or a piano, and it still stands on its own. It's, it's funny how a song does develop like that because when I first wrote it, it was just a just a little poem just sitting there. <laughs> it's really interesting what you're saying about how a song, a great song can go in many different directions. You you think of like Ray Charles covering the Beatles or, you know, I don't know, this, this what the Stones did with the song that was so different than what the original blues version would be. And I hear that in what you do. And that's one thing I love about what you do is that you're looking for kind of I don't know, the template, the soul, the seed, and out of the seed, many things can grow. Yeah. I love reimagining songs and reinterpreting them after, you know, you get sick of the the time signature or, you know, just the feeling of it. We did that um, over this past year with Weekender, which is just, you know, the most country sounding song. But then we added this funk groove to it and it it breathes new life into it and makes it fun for us all to play again i think bob dylan was so good at that you know he and he would go so far to even rewrite all the verses <laughs> i know like going to see bob dylan um in the 80s i remember was so funny because he would change everything and you, these you know older fans would sit there and they'd be so confused and we young punks would be like yes right on awesome. you're totally messing with your older fans we love yeah. it now i'm the older <laughs> fan i'm like come on bob give us like tangled Can't up you in sing blue it the, re- the, the real way <laughs> one of the most famous voices we hear alongside yours on this album is the voice of someone who also is a master of defying genre and of writing those classic songs and that's willie nelson how did you connect with willie Let's see, the first show that I played with him was 4th of July, Picnic, and I couldn't believe that I was going to be on the same bill. That was that would have been just enough for me, just to, you know, have the, have the t-shirt that had my name and his name on it together. I played with him there, and then again, just maybe, a, you know, a couple months later at Farm Aid, and that was the first time I, I was able to meet him. And I remember being chauffeured to his bus, and I was just kind of sitting there for a long time. And then he said, "Do you want to? Do you want to smoke?" <laughs> <laughs> Rite of passage for sure. Yeah. And uh, I'm a I'm a large supporter of uh, marijuana, <laughs> so of course I did not say no. But uh, he, you know, he's just been supportive um, ever since the first couple times that I shared a bill, and we had we'd written that song definitely with him in mind. We'd been listening to a lot of his work and you know we kept playing it back and forth is this ripping something off is this already a Willie song I don't know I don't think so we kept playing it for other people I thought why not just ask him to uh, to do it and then we got confirmation that he was in and so we took a plane to um, Austin and this was right around New Year's 
it was so hard to keep that a secret that I was going to do that because <laughs> I was so I'd never been more excited for anything. It felt like you know Christmas Day, and uh, then it it ended. It was so serendipitous the way that it ended up because the song says you know on the day before the day before the New Year, and that was the day that we flew there, and it felt so cosmic and and special. And and then we saw him perform at the Moody Theater, and then. The next day or the day after, we we went out to his studio um, out there in Spicewood, Texas, and we walked in, and his guitar was sitting there and a, a little stool and a little ashtray, and uh, he just came in. He was in the, the greatest mood, and he did it several times. And we had been told before, you know, if Willie doesn't like the song, well, he's going to do it once, and that's going to be it, and that might be all you get. And, you know, we're really sorry, but that's just how it goes and uh, I think he did it four or five times and we were just so pleased with how it turned out <laughs> let's hear a little bit of uh, the song Margot Price and Willie Nelson duet on on her new album All American Made it's called Learning to Lose on the day before the day before the new It's falling on my prairie home I'm so far away Where I started No closer Just to learn That I can't leave myself behind And the only devil I've ever seen Was in the mirror In my mind Won't you tell me How long Must I pay pay These dues Won't you tell me So that was Learning to Lose, which uh, you recorded with Willie Nelson, Margot Price. I'm Ann Powers, talking with Margot Price today. 
I've always wondered what it's like for a singer to adjust to Willie Nelson's uh, unique and to Meyer's perfect sense of phrasing as a duet partner, because he really is one of the masters of phrasing, but also he he travels to his own rhythm. How, how was that to sing with him? I love the way that it turned out. It's, you know, we're not exactly lined up all the time, but it feels so conversational in how it is, you know, just the, the kind of talking back and forth. And he asked a couple times, is it okay if I say it like this? Is it all right? If he he changed like one word in one of his, his lines. He said, is it okay if I say this? I said, of course, anything you want to do. And obviously was not going to sit there and try to produce him. I just let him do what he was going to do. And then I've followed that. And I've been um, lucky enough to get up during his sets uh, at the end of the night and and sing along with the gospel songs. You know, he just kind of does this whole medley. I just listen for him and, and follow along and, you know, find the harmony with, with everybody else that's standing up there. He marches to the own, you know, his own drum. <laughs> well, speaking of gospel singers, you also um, have the McCrary sisters on this album. Tell us a little bit about who they are and uh, how you connected with them for this project. The McCrary sisters, I, you know, have obviously heard them sing around town with just about everybody. They're local legends, but they're everywhere. They've they've done so much. And the first time I had the pleasure of singing with them was at the Americana Awards at the Ryman, not this past year, but the year prior. And I performed Tennessee Song from Midwest Farmer's Daughter, and they did the background vocals on that. And it just took it to a whole nother level because on our, you know, the way that we did it on the album, it's very raw. It's just people kind of yelling. I found like the worst singers I could find (laughs) and I had them all go in the room. (laughs) I mean, I love them all, but uh, yeah, the people on the the backgrounds of that are are not quite to the level of the McCrary sisters. And (laughs) so, yeah, after that, I just knew that I I wanted to sing with them more and reached out to them and, um, you know, sent them the song and they just put so much care into it with making up those parts and they had so much fun that day when they when they walked out of the studio you know they of course they were done tracking but they just sang their way out the front door <laughs> just so gospel you know they just wanted to they stopped in the in the kind of entryway and just started singing for a little bit and went out in the parking lot and they were all still singing together gospel music it's all about community and it's all about um, constantly developing and recalibrating how your voices work together. That's the beautiful, I think, thing about gospel quartets, yeah, which yeah. is what they do. And there aren't that many women who do gospel quartet singing, but I don't know. It's an ongoing conversation among those yeah. women. And they speak their own language because they're all sisters, too. So there's a lot of communication going on with just their eyes or just a word or two. And they all know where they're sitting in the harmony so they never you know have to say well, you, which one are you going to take it's just it's brilliant to see them work together <laughs> let's hear a little of Margot Price with the McCrary sisters from her new album All American Made do right by me do right by me do right by me
Margot, you've said that this album pushed you beyond the autobiography of Midwest Farmer's Daughter, though some songs still are autobiographical. You deal with some issues on this. I'm thinking of one particular song called Pay Gap. Hey, that's autobiographical and a political song. Thank you. (laughs) No one's pointed that out yet. (laughs) The personal is political, right, Margot? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that song I had been trying to write for... A really long time I you know started talking about the pay gap and my husband Jeremy was like you got to write a song about that and he tried a couple times he'd say what about this I was working on this and I think because it's a women's issue I just didn't want any help on it I, I can be hard-headed sometimes so I said no that's not it that's not it and I kept writing it and then finally it when it came out it, it came out in one sitting and was there anything structurally you did um to make Pay Gap kind of fit into the legacy of someone like Loretta Lynn, who also wrote Issue Songs, who I know is a big influence on you? or Yeah, you know, I think that song scares me a little bit. And it's, it's funny to have something that I've written that that frightens me. I'm, you know, maybe I'm worried about the reaction that people are, are going to jump to conclusions. You know, there's the line that says, in the eyes of rich white men. And it doesn't mean that all rich white men are the problem. It just happens, you know, to be when you look at our our government and and the majority of the people who are in charge, it's men. And so, you know, I try to clear that up on the last verse. I feel like I was pulling from John Lennon in, in that religion, sex, race, none of that matters. We're all equal. And that's all that I'm trying to say with that song. Well, I think it's beautifully plain spoken and clear eyed, which is to me the Margot Price, the essence of Margot Price. So let's hear Pay Gap by Margot Price. Honey, I work so hard for my money, and I leave my babies at home. Breaking my back, trying to bring home a check.
American made. There are some songs that still return to your own story and to the intimate details of your life. And one is Nowhere Fast, which really gets at the feel of, of being on the road and how frustrating it can feel and how you don't know where this is taking you. And, you know, you you have had a remarkable year or two. You have had a remarkable rise, but it's the music industry. We never know what's going to happen and I know your experiences have been sometimes frustrating as well as amazing. Let's talk a little bit about your experiences of the past couple of years uh, with Midwest Farmer's Daughter out there in the world. Yeah, obviously, you know, things have been going well, and I'm very happy about the 360 that's went on, or the 180, whatever the... <laughs> just... the, the turn, you mean, uh, away yes. from being... The local hero that you were in Nashville, Tennessee for many years, which, of course, you were and are to having a, a bigger national and international presence, working with Third Man Records and right. having this record out there. Yeah. So it's, it's I'm, I'm definitely happy for the change. I'm very grateful. But, you know, like you said, it could it could be over in a second. There's, uh, you know, there's just not a lot of stability in it. And I think everyone kind of assumes once your career's in a right place that you no longer have any problems, you no longer are dealing with depression or anything that might just be situational to life, you know? Things still happen that are unfortunate, and that song, I started out, I was just playing this this riff on an electric guitar, and I, I had just been gifted it, and I, I don't play electric very much, but I just sat down in my basement, plugged it in, and started playing the Bum, 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 ba, da, da, da. <laughs> and then figured out what the chords were around that, and the the song came out pretty much all in at one time. And you know, a lot of times I'll write words and then or write music and do it separately. But that started out; it felt very natural. And it's not comp- you know complaining necessarily, just telling people how I'm. It's vulnerable. I'm it's, it expresses the. I don't know. It just feels like it's it's totally from your heart. Yeah. What's the uh, Keith Whitley line? It's a uh, well, it's lonely at the top, but it's a bitch at the bottom, <laughs> and it's complicated in the middle for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I love the last minute of Nowhere Fast. Let's let's just, let's just listen to that the last minute of the song.
So what I think is so interesting about that last minute is how the song gets into a swirl of sound, you know, the last chorus, and then there's just this build. And all of the the reservations you've expressed, the loneliness, the, the longing, uh, we know that despite those things, you're going to stay on that road because it's so intoxicating. I love how you captured that in the music itself, and I wonder if that's what you were intending. Well, when you know, when I first wrote it, it just kind of ended with that riff again, and there wasn't the spacey, you know, urethral thing going on at the end. But I accidentally, when we were practicing it, I accidentally went to, started going to the D and the A minor, and the dissonance that it created and the key change and everything that happened there, everybody loved it, and the band got so excited to kind of, you know, do something that is is not so straightforward. You know, they all, you know, my pedal steel player, Luke Schneider, he has lots of really cool pedals and, uh, you know, loves to explore that kind of psychedelic territory. And so I'm, I'm really happy with, with the way that ended um, because it was, it was an accident. I wasn't supposed to go to that chord. And then everyone's like, oh, that sounds cool. So we kept it and, and built upon it. <laughs> so many of the great innovations of music happened by accident. Completely. <laughs> So you're experimenting on All American Made, but uh, you still love a, a barroom rocker. And <laughs> I want to talk about Weakness, the first single, because that is like full on rock and roll. Um, your voice is just fierce on that song. Like, how do you gear up for that song? <laughs> uh, see, I got to harness all my anger while I'm <laughs> doing my vocal warm ups in the other room. <laughs> now, I really do make sure that I find some bathroom or somewhere with good acoustics and try to sing for a good 30 minutes before I get on stage and and rip into something like that. But yeah, we you know, we'd been covering um George Jones song called Heartaches and Hangovers for quite a while and it that song has the kind of same like driving thing, but it does have, you know, that a little bit of a rock and roll edge to it. And uh it it just started out as a poem. I was having a, a completely bipolar day. Felt the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other, and I sat there and started writing. Some days I'm Virginia Woolf, sometimes I'm James Dean. And then it went on like that, where it was one character pitted against another character that were two totally opposites. And then I threw the notebook down, and, and my husband, he goes back and reads what I write to see if there's anything salvageable that I'm not using. And he was like, what is this? This is so good. And I thought, those... Those words are so weird. I don't know that we can make any kind of cool song out of that. And then uh, sometimes my weakness is stronger than me. Then he came up with that line, and then we sat down there and flushed it out pretty quickly. <laughs> I'm Ann Powers, and I've been talking to Margot Price, Queen of Nashville, Queen of East Nashville, at very least, if not the Seven Kingdoms. <laughs> <laughs>
If you liked this podcast, discover the rest of the NPR portfolio at npr.org slash podcasts and learn more about eight of the country's top 20 podcasts according to PodTrack's podcast metrics. That's npr.org slash podcasts.